Hey there. Thanks for joining me on Comedy Masterclass, where I interview creators about the craft of writing comedy. Hey everyone. I am really excited to have Chris Head with me today. Such an expert when it comes to comedy. I'm really lucky to have learned from Chris personally on one of his fantastic courses. But Chris, for those who haven't met you before, I'd love you to kind of give us a bit of a sense of what some of your connections to creating comedy. Okay, well, let's start with those fantastic courses. Um, One thing I do is run Zoom courses for comedy writers, particularly looking at 30-minute narrative comedy scripts for TV and radio had all sorts of writers come through that and just recently we've had a couple of writers come through who are now working with myself and a tv producer on scripts that are going to be pitched to channels um so that's great um as well as that i write about comedy um my most recent book creating comedy narratives for stage and screen um links sitcom comedy drama to stand up and improv and looks at all of the techniques that inform these different ways of doing comedy uh, and i also work on a dramaturg director for stage comedy uh, my current show is medico which is a medical comedy with stefania lacari who is uh, an italian nhs hospital doctor also a clown and a stand-up comedian um that's on now doing really well uh, it's a one-woman show about being an italian in the nhs so yeah that's a, an overview of the things that i get up to in the comedy world oh my goodness that show sounds so fun and i love that you have this incredibly broad perspective like you know so much about stand-up and sketches but you also really know how to translate that professionally into the craft of sitcom and longer pieces and so I am really gonna like borrow your brain today to think about that craft aspect and where I wanted to start actually was with setting setting in relation to comedy because honestly I have a bit of an ulterior motive in that I think it's one of my weak spots Um, I would talk about character all day, love creating characters, love thinking about arcs, love thinking about like structure and pacing. But if I'm not really intentional, I really neglect thinking about setting. And I know it's a a broad question, but I would love to know what some of the ways when you're working with writers on say sitcoms or comedy dramas, how do you get them to really think about setting and strengthen that in their work? So the first thing I'd say on that is it really helps if you care about and you're interested in the location that you have set your story, your narrative. Um, Sometimes people think, well, where hasn't a sitcom or a comedy drama been set before? Um, You might think, well, okay, well, we haven't seen something on an oil rig. That seems promising. Sort of claustrophobic, high stakes environment. That sounds good. And if you're fascinated by that world and you want to read about it, even better if you had a a relative who worked on oil rigs, you know, and you're just into that as a world, then that is going to be a good setting for you. But if you're just going, oh, where hasn't something been set before? Oh, okay, well, well, that. Um, it's not going to work. You know, your your heart has to be in the world. You have to be engaged with the world and interested in the world a classic example is the uh, it crowd graham linehan's sitcom 
And when he was developing that, originally it was set in a travel agent's. Same characters, but in a travel agent's. And his starting point was he wanted to do um, a two guys and a girl sitcom like Seinfeld. And so you can see he's got that character dynamic there. But they, they all were uh, Moss uh, and Roy and um, oh, Catherine um, Parkinson's character. can't remember her name. Jen. Now, but, is but it Jen? Jen. Oh, there you go. You've, you've it saved me. It is Jen. Thank you for saving me there. Um, so imagine them all working in a travel agents. And, you know, he was liking the characters, but realized he didn't give a shit about travel agents. And he was asked, well, what are you interested in? And he's a real geek, is really interested in tech. So thought, okay, well, how could I put them in a world that speaks to that? And eventually hit upon the, you know, the inspired idea of an IT department. And so suddenly it was a world that he engaged with and care about. And so, yeah, just being interested in the world, loving the world, even, you know, wanting to read around it, you've experienced it even, you know, this is the best thing for setting. That's so helpful and such a good reminder. I think you must also be clairvoyant because my dad actually was a deep sea diver and worked on all rigs uh, for his whole mm. life. So that's a really interesting example. But I've never thought about using that. For example, I'm writing short stories at the minute and I haven't set anything on an all rig, even though I've had so many details of it. And I think it's interesting. Sometimes we dismiss the things that are close to us um, when actually it's kind of the opposite that's required to dig into those and I didn't know that about the IT crowd it's such a fun show and I actually find it hard to imagine it in a travel agency so thanks that's really good advice and just to dig in a little bit further on a scene level like when I know you get so many scripts but when you get a script through like in terms of patterns and you're looking at how the writer's dealing with setting, what are some of the things that um, delight you or conversely that you sort of see as red flags, maybe like on a scene level with how they're actually grounding things? Because this is definitely something I struggle with. Okay. So it's a good, when you're asking a good question um, about grounding your, your scenes, you know, your characters, it has to have that grounding. Um, something I do um, as well is I teach comedy at Bar Spa University in the west of England. And we, with the third year actors and comedians, we go through um, a sitcom project where they devise a sitcom, write a 30-minute script, and then it it's filmed in the, the TV studio which is kind of ridiculously high spec sometimes we get industry visitors come in and who are jealous at the facilities that are there now the reason why i'm bringing this up is um one of the shows they really loved things like um the it crowd and black books things that are more kind of off the wall surreal well mighty boosh being another example but they didn't do the work of grounding it. You know, they just jumped to all of the crazy ideas and the end result has definitely got some fun about it and they were playful and there are some funny things in it. But in the end, kind of, I don't really buy the world. I don't particularly care about the characters or what happens to them because they didn't do the work of grounding in it, grounding it. Now you might say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, 
one thing is grounding it in emotional truth. So if you're doing something like comedy drama, then straight away you're much more concerned with that from the get-go about emotionally rich and well-observed and truthful relationships. But if you're doing a very broad, silly comedy, it's kind of easy to overlook that. But if you think about something like The Mighty Boosh, it's incredibly outlandish and surreal. But we really recognise that emotional dynamic between those two central characters and indeed the wider ensemble. You know, when they're working in the zoo in the original series, and that was the original stage show as well in the zoo, we just recognise their frustrations, that thing of being stuck in a job, you know, with a boss that, you know, you you struggle to deal with and you don't like your co-workers and you sort of feel trapped and the way things are run doesn't make sense and it frustrates you. So the fact that there's a, you know, there are talking animals in the mix and all this craziness going on, well, that's great, but we wouldn't go with it if it wasn't grounded in some reality. And so with, with uh, we do four sitcoms at Bar Spa and... I mean, and they, they all had a lot going for them, but the two that were most successful, and one of them was quite silly, is they were grounded in emotional truth and they had, they had stakes. Like one of them, the starting point was, um, uh, this central character, uh, his wife had walked out on him and that was the starting point. But he actually didn't know that yet. The people around him knew, but he didn't know. And then their challenge was, how are we going to break this news or can we fix it? And suddenly you've got real emotional stakes. And even though that show actually was quite silly in kind of style, there was some emotional truth to it, which, which grounded it. Yeah. Thank you. That, I mean, that, that really puts your finger on the crux of so many things I wanted to ask you too about character and stakes and how we actually progress things into those longer narrative forms and want to stay watching. Actually, based on um, one of your recommendations in the course, I ended up watching Afterlife, um, which the Ricky Gervais show. And I mean, talk about emotional truth. Oh my goodness. Like it really hit me in the chest and you cared about that character and and you still had the laughs. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of what matters and I can definitely uh, be guilty of rushing to the fun and the silly sometimes and not backing up enough to think, like, why do we really care about this character? Because you you are so great with character, you have so many like fantastic ways of breaking it down simply. So you, to kind of diagnose what's working, what's not working, you just have such a great eye for that. When you think about creating a central character, obviously we, we need to care about them. What else do you think are some of the um, main sort of pitfalls that you see people run into in terms of how they think about their main character? And then I'd love to pull that out because I know you're also great with ensemble cast. You have some fantastic frameworks for thinking about different tropes and types and how they fit together. But starting with the, the main character, what's kind of some of the kind of key questions people should be asking themselves beyond, you know, why do we care? What's at stake here? That, you know, helps to make them funny too. Yeah, so a big thing is what do they want? And that might sound obvious or simple, but it's surprising how that can get overlooked 
in the rush to make things funny. So being clear about what they want on kind of a global level, you know, actors would talk about Stanislavski, you know, the super objective. Um, so what is the thing that's driving them in their in their life? What's their big goal? But then you've got, well, what's the goal? What do they want in this particular story that you're telling? And then you've got, what is the goal of this character in the scene? And working on all those levels is important and making sure that they're goal-driven and that they want something. Now, how does comedy come out of that? Well, one big way, of course, is they can't get what they want. And that's also the stuff of drama. Now, what makes it comic is and this is something Steve Kaplan talks about Hollywood comedy guru who I was fortunate enough to uh, interview for my comedy narratives book he talks about um, your protagonist or your striver a word that I like using as being a non-hero and what he means by that is that they do have a quest they do have a goal but they don't have the skills to meet these challenges, but nevertheless, they try. And that's a nice shortcut to get to comedy. You know, give them a heartfelt goal that your character's got, but they don't have the skills to get it, but they're going to try anyway. Then a next question that's useful is, how aware are they of their shortcomings? Now, they could be very aware of their failings, in which case you then get into the comedy of kind of neuroticism, awkwardness, embarrassment, shame, or they could be unaware of their failings, in which case you've got this idea of sort of unearned confidence. You know, they believe that they should be able to get get what they want and they don't understand why things aren't working. But what they don't realise is that they're shooting themselves in the foot. So are they aware or not aware are are good questions to be asking. And, you know, the, the what do they want thing is just so fundamental and so weirdly overlooked. You often see scripts where the central character is actually quite passive. And this is, I mean, it's actually exceedingly common that, just stuff happens to them and yeah they've got to be the 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 author of their own misfortune in trying to get what they want but going about it in the wrong way or without the skill set that's required that that's what you want for a character to be driving the the narrative I love that phrase that I've written it down, the author of their own misfortune. I think that's just such a perfect description. And also just hearing you speak again just reminds me of why I love comedy so much, that idea of the non-hero struggling. Because actually, like, I get so bored in films like James Bond. I know they appeal to lots of people. I know people love, like, a slick hero, but a non-hero who's struggling without the skills is just uh, my idea of a perfect watch. So... I love how you framed those questions. Those are super useful and I'm definitely going to come back to them myself. So if I extend it out a little bit now and we're thinking um, about ensembles and feel free to relate it to, and it's probably different in your mind for sitcoms or comedy dramas. So pick 
pick which you prefer, but how do you think about setting a supporting cast around a character? And if it's helpful to have uh, a little bit more of a specific poke, one thing I really struggle with is my supporting characters kind of overtaking my protagonist in terms of interest. Like I sometimes have way more fun writing them or they seem um, to like pop to life easier than the main character. You've given us loads of help with the main character questions to be asking, but I just wondered if you've had any thoughts about how to create a dynamic that fits together. Yeah, definitely. And just before I go into that, something I would say with your particular situation is probably you're focusing on the wrong character. If your kind of main character is not really mm. grabbing you, it's not really popping, but other characters are, well, it's time to think about which of these other characters is going to be my main character. And the person that you thought was going to be your main character was a catalyst that took you to somewhere different. And they can either now become a more peripheral character or you can just drop them altogether. You know, you've just got to go with where, where the juice is, what you're enjoying writing, because that's what people are going to enjoy watching or enjoy reading. Um, so to come on to the other point of the ensemble of characters, uh, I have a model for this, which is just very helpful. And I, I know it is because I've worked with so many writers over so many years. And so I'm going to break down this model for you. And in fact, there isn't a distinction between sitcom and comedy drama. You know, it would apply equally in both. So I'm going to talk you through um, the model and give you some examples. So I call your... So my, my word for protagonist is striver. And the reason why I like that word is um, you're immediately thinking, what are they striving for? You know, it, it, makes, it makes them goal-orientated. So at the heart of the show, our main character is the striver. Uh, they can potentially be in an odd couple. You know, you could have a couple of strivers who are at the, the heart of the narrative. They might be rivals. It might be a, a love interest. But let's go through some specific examples. And I'm going to start off talking about sitcom. Um, we'll bring in mockumentary. Uh, we'll start with some classics we'll get more up to date and then to finish off i'm going to talk about uh comedy drama now sitcom wise well let's start with friends obviously there are aspects of it that feel dated you know inevitably but it, it endures as an absolute classic show in that studio audience sitcom style so striver wise you've got ross and rachel there at the heart of it and although it's an ensemble show, um, right from the start, the network saw Ross and Rachel as the protagonists. And in fact, they wanted to pay the actors um, more money. Um, and very um, sh shrewdly and generously, um, Jennifer Aniston and David Schwimmer said, no, the whole ensemble should be paid the same. And that really helped them all bond. Which, on a side note, um, you know, when you're writing a sitcom or a comedy drama, you're creating an opportunity for a performance. And, of course, it's the actor, it's the performer who brings it 
to life. And when you're writing your script, thinking, how can I make this as fun as possible for the performer? Or how can I make sure a really great comedy actor, actress is going to bite my hand off to play this part? You know, that's a really great thing to be thinking about when you're writing your script. But so Ross and Rachel are our strivers. And then with my ensemble, um, you also need a boss. And the main boss in the group of friends, the one who's in charge, is Monica. And then in comedy, you always need fools. So fools can be stupid, clumsy, inept, but actually they could also be really intelligent. And what makes them a fool is that they're socially awkward, say, or they're they're naive. Um, and in Friends, fool-wise, we've got Joey and Phoebe, very different characters. And Joey is of the unearned confidence type, and he's, um, you know, not aware of his failings and that he himself is holding him back. Phoebe is a bit more aware, but she's got such a strange outlook. You know, she's kind of on another planet. So we've got your strivers are sandwiched between a boss or bosses and fools. They're stuck in the middle. Then the other key um, character is the foil. And this is the character who is more aware of the absurdity or more aware of the embarrassment just kind of feels it more and and reacts to it comedy is so much about reacting and it's good to have a character whose job it is to react to stuff and here you've got chandler as the foil so that's the boss striver full foil and i'll give you some other examples more quickly in faulty towers well basil is the striver so your main character is always the striver. Well, the boss, who's got the power in the situation? It's Sybil. Uh, the main fool is Manuel, the Spanish waiter. But there are other fools around, like the major. Um, and the foil is Polly. You can see that it's her job to be the more down-to-earth, reasonable one, but also who gets caught up in Basil's schemes and really feels the pain of it. So she's a great foil. But thinking about Faulty Towers, um, in terms of bosses, as well as Sybil, you know, you'll have characters like the hotel inspector or the, um, you know, the public health person from the council where there's a rat. And sometimes guests are bosses, like Mrs. Richards with her vase, you know, and complaining about the view She's not happy about seeing Torquay out of a Torquay hotel bedroom window. She's a boss, and the American guy who wants his Waldorf salad, he's a boss. Very often, the guests are foils. You know, that's a big job that they do, just reacting to what's going on. And, of course, you can also have fools among the uh, guests. I said I would do mockumentary, so... Um, David Brent in The Office, he's your striver. Michael Scott in the American version. Boss-wise, um, I've got a dog in the background, by the way, who's who's dreaming. Um, and she's doing little barks in her, in her sleep. Um, it, the microphone's probably not even picking it up, but I, I, I was aware. So it's Don't nice worry, I've got a lovely, beautiful image now of her running. Yes, 
because so she becomes the fool in this situation, the the dog, you know. So so I'm the striver <laughs> trying to, you know, I'm striving to put this <laughs> stuff across. And we've got the fool over there who's the dog. You know, you're the boss because it's the show. And I guess, you know, the audience are the foils. <laughs> um, so the foils in the office, it's Tim and Jim. You know, you can see that. Fools, Gareth, Dwight. You've got Neil Godwin, Josh Porter, um, Chris Finch. So um, Chris Finch and Todd Packer, if you know the shows, they're interesting bosses. So when I say boss... I don't mean the one whose job it is to be the manager. I mean the one who's got power and they've got social power. And so that makes them bosses. But you can see how all this lines up. Um, I don't just, I don't want this to become a list, but um, I do want to show you how kind of prevailing this is in the, if we think about Fleabag in the second Fleabag, which I think it's just particularly great. I mean, it's amazing from the start, but I think it's incredible where Phoebe Waller-Bridge takes it to in the second series. Um, but boss-wise, we've got Fleabag's godmother and father. The Striver is obviously Fleabag. We know that. Um, the Fool, the main Fool, is Claire. And the Foil is the Priest because he's the one who's reacting to stuff and has got drawn into this craziness. And it's the one that's kind of creating it. He's the one who's mo it's the most problematic for him. You know, it's, it's affecting his, his vocation as a priest and it's very confusing. So he's really reacting to what's going on. So he's the foil. Um, now finally on this big section that I'm giving you here on the podcast, um, I did want to bring it into comedy drama. And I actually want to think about the second Blackadder and Succession. So if we think about Blackadder 2, um, Queen Elizabeth I is the boss, clearly. And in Succession, we know that Logan Roy is. Um, now, in terms of Blackadder, obviously, the main striver is Blackadder. And it's interesting matching them up because Roman in Succession is basically Blackadder. You know, you can see that. He's the smart, cynical one who's totally uncensored and is happy, you know, upsetting and winding up other people. So Romans are Blackadder. You've got other strivers, of course, in succession. You've got um, Kendall, um, and he pairs up with Melchit, Stephen Fry's character in the, the second Blackadder. And so Melchit is rubbing up against Blackadder, in the same way that Kendall and Roman have got this this friction. And then extending it, um, thinking of um, Shiv in succession, well, she's Kate in, in Blackadder. And then fall-wise, of course, the great fall in Blackadder is Baldrick. And, well, who is that in succession? Well, it's Greg. So Greg um, is the Baldrick. And you've got other fools in um, Blackadder 2, like Percy, well, who's that in succession? It's Connor. And it's really interesting looking at that. And this is something that I'm writing about in book three, which are, and you're the first to go kind of hear this, this succession Blackadder matchup. Um, but what that, I mean, that may show, 
Jesse Armstrong had Blackadder in the back of his mind, and particularly Blackadder 2, when he was planning Succession. I mean, it might show that, you know, he just loves the show so much, it's just in his bones. But probably what it shows is that this dynamic is so fundamental, it just, if if you're doing it right, kind of instinctively, you're going to be arranging your characters in this way. And where my boss, Striver, Fool, Foil model helps is it just helps you not rely on instinct to get it right it just means you'll get it right because you're filling all of those key slots and they're all working together as an ensemble and once you've got a bunch of characters and it's up and running you forget about it you don't go oh striver boss for you know they're just they're just characters now and this thing this model that it's like the map that got you there you know once you've arrived you forget about the map oh my goodness there's so many things i love about that uh firstly i'm never going to look at succession the same again in a good way i know there's a new season coming out soon and i'm now totally obsessed about the idea of mapping like greg to his like like his compatriot that's an amazing concept and what i really love about that is I think it's incredibly helpful for people like myself because like I will fess up and say that in general, I am more drawn to comedy drama than to sitcoms. There are lots of sitcoms that I love, but I am pretty obsessed by so many of the comedy dramas that have come out in the last several years and the scope that they take. And you've just explained so well how these kind of frameworks are still so relevant. Because I know when you first explained it to me, I am one of those kind of ornery people that both loves frameworks and like immediately wants to be to rebel against them and be like, oh, that probably doesn't apply to this. That Oh, but that doesn't apply to this. Like it's some kind of constraint. And what you showed so well is it like totally isn't. It's such a great map. It's so incredibly helpful. And it was such a fun game then as a viewer to start matching it to different things and even asking those questions of like, who is the boss? Who is the striver here? And and figuring those things out is so helpful in terms of demystifying, making it really practical, looking at the dynamics, looking at how power is working, making sure, like you say, it's still people being active, people observing. It's incredibly helpful. So thank you for sharing those. And I do love this Blackadder succession link. My brain is now obsessed with it. <laughs> um, and that was the last thing I'll say about that is I also love the term striver. Um, I default again, but I think because I read so many um, different like screenplay books to things like protagonist, but just embedded in the word like protagonate is such an odd kind of verb like do we even do that whereas when you break it down to someone striving and that it's inbuilt in it is that sense of like suffering struggling trying to get to a goal so it's such a great reminder so what a powerful framework I love it and it's such a great reminder to me too thank you in the last little bit of our interview before we wrap up you've given us so many really practical applicable tools to take to our craft I'd love to just start uh, in the wrap up to broaden it out now to how you kind of see comedy as it stands from where we are in 2023 so the more general question is just are there any things because you work so closely with different people in the industry what do you see as being some of the main changes that have happened in the last couple of years and is there anything that's kind of in your head as we're going into 2023 and beyond that you think may be further changes uh, in an exciting way or, or however you want to interpret it I mean, there's lots of things you could say 
to that. But the one thing I would like to talk about just is the rise of comedy drama. And I was listening to uh, a podcast with Mark Gatiss of the League of Gentlemen and Sherlock, etc., etc. And he was saying often you see a drama and it's very serious and it's very intense and it's lauded and it, it wins awards. And I mean, of course, and brilliant, no doubt as well, but there's no kind of humor in it. And there, there's no moments where people laugh or something silly happens. And I remember watching, um, the Jed Mercurio series, was it called the bodyguard? Um, Mm, I think I think it yes. was yeah it was yes. called that so it was a police protection officer looking after a politician and my partner Kate and I watched it and I did become gripped and I wanted to know what happened uh, I was disappointed by the ending I thought okay it's just got ludicrous now um and no, not in a funny way um but the thing that just struck me as ridiculous about that whole series is that I mean, okay, let me qualify that by saying it was brilliant as well, you know, as a piece of drama <laughs> and just yeah. compelling as a piece of storytelling with, albeit in my view, a slightly questionable ending. But anyhow, but I thought what was ridiculous was if you had real police officers in, in this situation and Jed Mercurio is all about, you know, the reality and really showing us the truth of these people's lives – they would be making jokes. There would be black humor. There would be lots of laughter. Mm. And nobody made any jokes. There was no humor. There was no laughter. Everyone's totally serious from beginning to end. And you think, well, that's completely unreal. That's not realistic at all. Mm. And so what Mark Gatiss was talking about is he was saying the best stuff has both. You know, it has the drama and the intensity and, you know, the scariness or, the, you know, the emotion, the sadness, and it's got the humor and the, the funniness. And, you know, we're, we're just seeing more and more of that, you know, for example, with White Lotus that can be very broad, almost kind of sitcom-y, really. It's not a million miles away from Benidorm. And yet you've got the drama and you've got the stakes and you've got the emotion and, you know, in the half hour format, also, we've seen so many of these shows where, well, Fleabag being a case in point, you know, it's very much comedy drama. You've got the comedy and you've got the drama. And I think it's it's that mix. Oh, and just watched, um, a little belatedly, it came out in 2021, but just watched Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film. And it's absolutely 100% in this zone. You know, it's it's beautiful emotionally, you know, and there's the drama and there is tension and conflict, but it's also hilarious. And And I think that's just such an important thing if you're writing now. And I would say whether you're writing drama or comedy. So now BBC Writers Room bring me in to train well you know train my stuff to the, the drama writers because they all want to do comedy drama and you know the BBC know that that's where it's at and even though it's a drama course I come in and I do the comedy drama stuff with them and I would say even if you're writing a sitcom even if you love 
you know, the old-fashioned studio audience style, or even if it's totally off the wall and surreal, I think you've got to say, why does it matter? What's at stake? Where's the heart in this? Yeah, that's a, a perfect place, I think, for us to land in terms of those questions. And you're so right in terms of where those overlaps were to bring it back to the oil rig. I mentioned um, that my dad was a deep sea diver. And again, when he would talk about the kind of jokes that they would crack and the comedy that they would find in things, even when doing really desperate things like the Piper Alpha cleanup and um, dealing with all kinds of like really intense situations, you're so right, people do make jokes. So that kind of seeing things going both ways, I think that's also one of the things that I love so much about comedy is how it allows us to look at what's really true, what's really painful, that without that comic um, lens to provide some space or to provide some levity to, I sometimes find too heavy in drama. Whereas uh, I will watch something like Succession and adore it, even though I'm also clutching my chest with how awful some of it is, because it does have those Greg scenes, it does have uh, the lightness. Those are such brilliant questions. Thank you, Chris. Before we finish, I'd love to point people to where they can uh, see your work, like what what you'd love them to uh, dig into more and where they can find you. I will also put those in the show links, but where would you point people to first? What should they check out and where should they find you? Uh, well, my website, first of all, uh, chrishead.com, uh, all of that stuff's there. Um, definitely my books, Creating Comedy Narratives for Stage and Screen. If you've been interested in what you've been hearing me say today, that's go get that. Um, also, my first book is a director's guide to the art of stand-up. So that's the other big part of what I do is work on stand-up. And it's not a different thing. You know, the same the same kind of thinking applies to stand-up as well. But if you're into stand-up, I would have a look at that. Um, I have been recording a podcast. I've only got around to doing three um, episodes. Um, I need to do some more. But I think the three episodes that are there... Uh, are good so that's called um a q and ha i called it and um, so it's like q and a but with an h q and ha and the idea is it's good oh, questions that that take you to funny ideas so there's there's that and i also do of course all of these courses and i'm doing one at, at the moment which is the the write your tv comedy script course which over five weeks you get it written and that's a lot about well everything we've been talking about, but also the structure of that script, and that's a whole other thing that we, you know, we could talk about. But um, we're running out of time. But I'll, I'll um, I've done a really good blog on that as well as my book. I'm going to say really good. I'm sounding like I'm. Uh, no, it is really good. Sod it. <laughs> sod the sod the modesty. Um, it's a very helpful <laughs> blog. I just know because people have read it and told me. Um, so in terms of structure, I'll send you the link to that and you can put that in the in the show notes um yeah i have other courses uh, as well including stand up on zoom and stand up in london and other places so yeah yeah well that that's a flavor of what i'm doing oh and, and i also do um one-to-one coaching with people and you can book that through my website Amazing. You can uh, find all those things in the show notes too. I can attest to the fact it's more than very good. It's so brilliant. Like I read your book on stand-up, even though I'm not a stand-up, I never intend to do stand-up and I got so much from it too. So uh, 
Thank you so much for sharing so many really helpful tools and practical strategies and helping us break it down. I've got so much to think about uh, after listening to you. So many great reminders. So thank you so much for your time today, Chris. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been a real pleasure to sit here and talk with you about all of this stuff and really nice that uh, the dog put in an appearance as well in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just looking out over my dog who's snoozing too and I'm thinking of him as a fool, <laughs> which makes yes. him even more charming. Dogs are the best fools, yeah. I think. <laughs> yes, awesome. exactly. Thank you, Chris. <laughs>